the Two Minute Hate. I'm Evan Barrett. Um, a little programming note, first of all. Um, I'm setting up a Twitter and Gmail for the podcast. Uh, I guess I'm going to try and actually promote this, uh, maybe. So <laughs> that's what I'll use the Twitter for and the Gmail. Um I'll use for a couple different things, but one thing we can use it for is if you want to suggest topics um, for discussion, you can send it to the Gmail. So the Gmail is the, the number two minute hate at gmail.com. So the two minute hate at gmail with the number two. And the Twitter handle is exactly the same at the number two minute hate at the two minute hate. Um, so if for any reason you want to interact, with the podcast in some way, um, you can use those two addresses. Uh, in this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit about TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that was a big issue uh, in the election. Obviously, this is not um, something that's super relevant to the news this week, but it's just sort of something I'm interested in and wanted to talk for a long time. Uh, about this, so it's sort of like an evergreen podcast, but I think it's it's relevant to sort of my understanding of, of Trump and, you know, where American politics is at. So, you know, the first thing I'll say is that I think, you know, Obama was trying to create in a number of ways with foreign policy and economic policy this so-called pivot to Asia. I think that was somewhat wise. I mean, I think he's He's right that sort of the medium-term future of global economic development is in Asia, and given that that's the case, um, the importance he placed on creating a comprehensive trade partnership uh, in that region to sort of give the United States an advantage and access to markets, particularly uh, in competition with China, was very important. Um, And I cannot claim any expertise on the deal itself, you know, one way that people try to figure out, um, sort of try to interpret legislation, especially when it's long or complicated, uh, is to see who in Congress supports it and who doesn't, and see if you can sort of reverse engineer what the, uh, what the sort of merits of a particular item are based on the sort of contours of which uh, sort of quarters in Congress support it and which oppose it. I think the TPP, because it's so complicated, uh, was very difficult. There was some Republican support, some Republican opposition, and there was some Democratic support and some Democratic opposition. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm interested in talking about why I think that opposition exists despite the fact that I think a trade deal in Asia might have been a good idea. I mean, one of the first observations is that, you know, I don't think the TPP was popular with the Democratic base or just the American base in general. I think the the electorate, I think there's a sense that, you know, jobs are being shipped overseas and that's a problem and these trade partnerships uh, facilitate that. I think when Hillary Clinton came around to abandoning the TPP uh, as part of her platform, I think voters were sort of rightly suspicious that (laughs) this is the type of policy that, as a committed neoliberal, 
uh, Hillary Clinton would want to pursue, and even if she wasn't pursuing uh, the letter of the TPP as developed by the Obama administration, there would probably be minor changes, and then she would pursue the deal. So I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to people who were not comforted um, by her abandoning the TPP as a part of her platform. Now, I think what we have to do to discuss this is sort of go back and put these trade deals in context, because as I've said, I think it was uh, wise to pursue um, this sort of comprehensive trade deal in Asia, but I think I'm also very sympathetic and supportive of the reasons why people were opposed to it, and I think uh, we have to look at sort of how these deals operate in the past. So in preparation for this podcast, I did a little bit of research on NAFTA. Um, I was pretty young when the NAFTA debate was going on and when Ross Perot was trying to talk about how trade deals are bad for the American worker. Um, and, you know, my recollection of NAFTA when I studied it in school, I sort of thought the the left's position, like the sort of like G20 summit protester position on NAFTA was that it was sort of like a resource and labor exploitation bill for the global south in, you know, the North American context, uh, basically meaning Mexico and Central America. Um, And I thought the opposition was primarily that, you know, the deal would be too favorable to the United States uh, and hurt the economies and labor markets in Mexico specifically. But in fact, you know, I was looking at some of the folks who opposed NAFTA at the time and what they were saying, and uh, I'm I'm sad to admit that uh, Noam Chomsky in particular, our uh, American communist grandpa, seemed to be actually right on in his anticipation of what would happen. His assessment at the time, uh, you can look up some of his comments on YouTube, and he had a couple articles about it, was that actually it would be NAFTA would be bad for labor in all the countries that were a part of the agreement, and it would be good for capital in all the countries that were a part of the agreement. So in other words, you know, it wasn't so much that one country would benefit um, as it was that sort of the same economic elites in each country would benefit while uh, labor found itself in a less advantageous position. And I think that's been borne out. I mean, I think that... um, Basically, for most Americans, the cost of consumer goods going down, which is one of the outcomes uh, of trade deals like this and just globalization in general, is not actually a fair trade for what's being given up. Um, You know, Adam Carolla has this bit where he says, uh, it's never been better to be poor in America than right now. And what he's observing he says is that, you know, you see poor people and they have phones, they have refrigerators, they have big screens, TVs, and they have cars. And he says, you know, when he was growing up poor, uh, none of that was the case. And I think what he's observing, though, it's not the point he's trying to make, is that, you know, through the pursuit of uh, an integrated global economy, the cost of goods for Americans have gone down, especially electronics, but a number of other things as well. And I think what he leaves out is that the cost of things that people actually care about more have gone up during the same period. So that while a poor person today might have a smartphone or a car or a 
uh, fancy television that was relatively affordable, you know, in the past 30, 40 years, uh, the cost of healthcare, the cost of access to education, and the availability of, like, working-class jobs uh, that you can enter without sort of, um, you know, an expensive education, all those things have gone down, and that's not really a trade that anyone would take. I mean, I think in in a lot of the more social democracies in Europe, the cost of goods are still more expensive than they are in the United States, whether it's, you know, electronics or food, like a lot of just consumer goods are more expensive. But what the state has subsidized uh, is health care and education, and there's a lot more public sector jobs. And I think in general, uh, that's a deal that those citizens are much more happy with, and I suspect Americans would be happy with too. So I think you know, we can't discuss TPP in isolation. What we have to sort of cop to, and I think what Democrats have to cop to, is that these sort of gains that have been wrought by uh, globalization and the trade deals associated with facilitating globalization uh, are changes to the economy that have not been beneficial to the majority of Americans, or in the cases where they do see the advantages um like the cost of consumer goods going down, these trade-offs are not uh, are not worth what they're giving up, such as you know a competitive place in the labor market. So I think you know it's impossible to discuss the merits of TPP in isolation because we have to acknowledge that for most Americans, you know, the sort of neoliberal managers in both the Democratic and Republican Party have had uh, 25 years or so to convince Americans that these sorts of trade deals and globalization writ large are advantageous for them, and they have failed to do so. So even if I think, you know, I sort of concur with Obama that uh, the economic future of the world is uh, is going to be very impacted by growth and development in Asia, it's very important that the U.S. have a foothold there, and if we don't, our economic competitors will, will step into the vacuum and we will be, you know, uh, permanently disadvantaged. I think all that's true, but you still have to acknowledge that um, from the point of view of most Americans, I think this uh, globalization experiment has failed or the the downsides appear to outweigh uh, the upsides. And basically, you know, the reason this gets complicated is sort of like international trade uh, has grown the global economy to a point where you can say, well, it, it must help everyone that, um, you know, like the total GDP of so many countries has gone up, including the United States. But the fact of the matter is those gains have been distributed uh, within, you know, the ruling classes in developed nations. There's other countries where the situation is different. India, China, where you see middle classes developing as a result of globalization and sort of the the monetary gains are more dispersed, um, either because those places have become manufacturing hubs or the governments have taken a more active role in distributing the gains of globalization. But that certainly has not happened in the United States, and so I think people are are rightly skeptical uh, that they benefit from this. So, you know, you can imagine a scenario in which over the last 25 years, the economic gains of globalization were used to fund uh, sort of much more generous social programs um, 
but sort of the opposite has happened. I mean, I don't remember the exact timing, but you know, there's a certain irony to the fact that Bill Clinton signed both NAFTA and welfare reform. So you know, while you're uh, making arrangements through global trade to sort of take in more money on a whole, you're uh, limiting the government's capacity or desire to, uh, you know, do these like broad social programs. So I basically, you know, come down on the side of uh, not agreeing with the anti-TPP folks, but sort of thinking that uh, the opportunity to convince Americans that this sort of deal was a good deal for them has come and gone, and that was already a failure. And, you know, to sort of place this in a broader intellectual framework, I wanted to reference, um, there's this one academic, uh, his name's Danny Roderick, um, and he has this thing he sort of calls the globalization trilemma. And basically, um, his argument, and it's been discussed on some other podcasts, I think Glenn Lowry talked about it on his um, blogging heads show, but basically the the observation he's making is that uh, current Western states want, you know, three things. They want uh, to retain national sovereignty, they want hyper-globalization, and they want to be a democracy. And these three things are in conflict, um, and you can probably only have two out of three. Um, because I think the argument goes, if you pursue hyper-globalization, you are going to want to support uh, you know, the free movement of labor and capital and products, and this sort of undermines national borders. Uh, and at the same time, if you have this sort of unrestricted globalization, uh, eventually voters in states affected by globalization who are not benefiting from it will vote against it. Um, and so there sort of needs to be uh, like a decision made of whether you want some sort of global governance uh, to administer, you know, the global economy, and that will undermine sovereignty, or you could just sort of uh, make efforts to ignore the voter so that whether or not they're benefiting is less relevant, but that these three priorities, democracy, hyper-globalization, and sovereignty, are going to be in conflict. Uh, and I think that's just sort of the the dilemma we're we're looking at with with TPP and I think you know this is this is sort of the type of issue that's behind some of the energy we saw for both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders the idea that uh, American labor in particular needs greater protections from the government uh, to be competitive in a global marketplace so that we aren't just constantly hemorrhaging jobs to cheaper labor markets. Um, and I think, you know, I, I sort of believe in neoliberalism in the sense that um, I think it's the most efficient and productive economic model, but at the same time, if markets need to be less efficient or less free to actually allow uh, my co-citizens to survive in them, I'm certainly uh, sympathetic to... Uh, greater government intervention to sort of deal with that transition. And I think that both parties so far have failed to do so. I mean, I think Trump is sort of failing to realize the dream that he discussed uh, in the campaign. I'm, I'm very curious if this trillion dollar infrastructure projects, uh, trillion, a trillion dollars in infrastructure projects that he discussed 
will come to fruition. Obviously, that would mean hundreds of thousands of jobs. Um, and I think, you know, the Democrats are not all on board with sort of Bernie's economic vision. But I do think even though that's not my vision, um, I, I think the electorate is sort of looking for a party uh, that will redistribute the gains of globalization and in particular address uh, the way it's affected the labor market in the United States. And I think, you know, as I, not to repeat myself, but I think so far both parties have failed to do that. I mean, one way you could distribute the gains is through much more generous health care. Uh, Donald Trump talked during the campaign like he might pursue some form of, of generous health care. He's, he's complimented uh, the types of universal health care that exist in other uh, in other Western states, but the you know plans that are coming out of the Republican Party are are not anything close to that. In fact, they're they're kicking people off the insurance rolls. So, you know, I don't think either party has seized this uh, opportunity to to reconcile um, the voters' dissatisfaction with the impacts of globalization. I think you know theoretically, like ideologically. The Democrats should be better positioned to do so, but uh, so far they've failed, so we'll see what happens with that.